season one of Written in Stone, the 1990s is supported by Tension Climbing, wooden training tools designed with purpose in Denver, Colorado. Use the code STONE, that's S-T-O-N-E, to get 10% off of your next purchase at tensionclimbing.com and to let them know that their support for this show matters. Not valid for tension board sets, hardware, or gift cards. Cannot be combined with other offers. Tensionclimbing.com. Mastery over success. Written in Stone is co-created by Power Company Climbing. Products, training plans, and education to help you become a better climber. PowerCompanyClimbing.com. Use the code STONE, that's S-T-O-N-E, for 20% off of almost everything. Learn. Grow. Excel. For some climbers, it's tough to focus on just one story, particularly when the tick list is rather, well, impressive. Take this tick list, for example. 9B, first ascent. 9A plus slash B, first ascent. 9A plus, first ascent. 9A plus, second ascent, third attempt. 9A slash 9A plus. Three more 9As, one of them a first ascent. Three 8C pluses, two of them first ascents. Three 8Cs, one of them a flash. And this isn't a lifetime tick list. I mean, it would be for just about anyone else. But no, this tick list represents one trip. Three weeks. Eight routes between 9A and 9B. 14D to 15B. What did you do with your last vacation? So it shouldn't be any surprise that he's on the list of red points for one of the most famous routes in the world in that same grade range. Action Direct. It shouldn't be any surprise that he ticked that box quickly. But let's back up for a minute. It's not a gimme. The best climbers in the world still take multiple days, sometimes multiple trips, to earn the right to mantle onto its mossy top where they can clip the most sought-after chains on the planet. But quickly, what exactly does quickly mean? Two days, 10 tries, surely not one day. That would be unheard of. Well, in March of 2014, when Alex Magos tied in beneath the world-famous bulge, he had gone up it for the first time just two hours earlier. Not yet wearing his trademark yellow shirt, though he was wearing a yellow chalk bag, he never once breaks form, never looks out of control, never moves without certainty. And less than 90 seconds later, jubilant screams of the 22-year-old who has clearly picked up where Wolfgang left off are echoing through the forest. Alex, welcome to Written in Stone. Thank you so much. <laughs> I remember that trip quite well in, in Spain. <laughs> yeah, I, I was doing some research for this episode and I came across that tick list and was like, Wow, that's a that's a pretty amazing three weeks. That was one of my better trips for sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely absurd. I actually remember your first US trip and and it sort of 
caught me by surprise too. Um, not just the fact that you onside of my project right in my face uh, in the red, <laughs> but that you did so many routes and boulders of different styles uh, across the country. And I had never heard your name before that moment. And that was kind of a, a big breakout for you. Um, since we're talking about Wolfgang, I'm curious, on that trip, was there any like, was there inspiration for that trip based on the U.S. trips that like he and Kurt would take and just crush everything? I mean, of, of course, at some point as a climber, at least as a climber in Europe or Germany, like going to the States is something you'd want to do just because of the history of all the the famous areas and the famous routes. And I know Wolfgang and Kurt have been multiple times to the States and crushed a bunch there. And also like a good friend of mine, Norbert Sandner, who was a good friend of, uh, of Wolfgang. He went to the yeah. States quite a few times with them on those trips. And it just seemed to, when I finished school, like the logical first big trip. So yeah, that was for sure an inspiration. And four months seemed like a good length of time to get a, a good um, overview of most of the areas. So we uh, flew over to Boston and bought a car and then literally uh, drove from East Coast to West Coast and then down to Waco Tanks in four months and tried to climb as much as possible. Man, that's that's the way to do it. Fantastic. It was it was a cool way to like see you burst onto the scene too. It's good fun. I mean, we had obviously I didn't have anything in mind. I just wanted to climb as much as possible and it was like this little uh, fun goal we had for the trip to climb more 8As routes and boulders than we had days in the US. So that's yeah. like V11 upwards and 13B and upwards. And we had like 120 days. We stayed in the U.S. And uh, after the four-month trip, I came back with a tick list of 135. Like <laughs> 8A, 8A boulders and roots. <laughs> so uh, I literally, I remember going to first Romney and then the Red and just opening the back of the guidebook where they have like the list of all the routes yeah. um, by grade. And I just say, okay, everything 13B and upwards, I want to take like everything that's in the guidebook. And back then it was not that much as it is today. It was like maybe yeah. 40 routes or something. And I think apart from Southern Smoke Direct, which back then was the hardest route here, I ticked almost every 13B and upwards. Yeah, that's, it's funny. That would be surprising to me, except for I got to watch you climb on that trip. And one day in particular, not the day you onside of my project in my face, but... Another day, I was climbing on Black Gold, 8A+, and you rolled up and were taking photos on it. Mm -hmm. And I remember watching you do the crux move and then look over at the photographer and say, should I do it again? And then reversing the crux move and casually just hanging out while he got a different angle. And, and you just did the crux move like five times in a row, down climbing it and climbing back up it over and over and i was like wow if this kid wasn't so happy and smiley i would probably hate him <laughs> <laughs> i remember that day i remember that day <laughs> yeah amazing man well before we jump into these questions i've got for you i have i have one question i have to know the answer to and that's if you had to adopt any fashion trend from wolfgang 
in the 80s and 90s? Would it be the short shorts, the wild tights, or the mustache? Got to be the short shorts, for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Make my legs look even better. <laughs> uh, I love it. I love it. So something I want to know is like with the Frank and Yura as your home area, do you remember the first time you became aware of Wolfgang in Action Direct or was it kind of always there? Oh, I don't remember the particular moment the first time I became aware, but it's always been present. I mean, you always, you know, no matter which climbing gym you would walk into back then, you know, people were talking about it like on old posters, you would you would see Wolfgang, you would see like the gang back then, like Kurt and Norbert and my father having done a climbing course actually in university with Norbert and Wolfgang Gülich. That was kind oh, of like nice. <laughs> the foundation of, of everything. So I was like omnipresent, I feel like, and it's always been there. So growing up, of course, I, I was aware of Action Direct at some point and I remember it being like this mythical route and this like crazy sort of unachievable thing back then when mm. I was a kid and me uh, kind of like setting a goal for myself like uh, at some point I want to climb Action Direct that was like the goal I had as I don't know a 10 year old boy or like a 12 year old boy that's when I got much more into climbing and like then it seemed ridiculously far away and not even a decade later, it became an absolute reality. Yeah. Well, you had already on-sided 9A by the time that you did Action Direct. So was it like you had to keep yourself from trying it or was it you had to convince yourself to try it because it was so mythical? So at the beginning, I was kind of scared to try it because it seemed like this mythical route and... Then once I broke through the the 9A barrier and I realized, oh, okay, I can actually climb this, then suddenly I had this, like the goal shifted to not only just climbing it, but climbing it in a day because I knew that mm. had never been done before. And usually, uh, especially when foreigners come, they need to get used to the style in the front mirror. So for like a foreigner to climb Action Direct in a day, only very few people would be able to do that just because of the very particular style. But me as a local and yeah, what wanting to be uh, like a strong climber, that seemed like the logical goal for me to do because already back then it was still obviously a, a mythical route, but climbing 9A was not that special anymore. And even climbing right. 9A in a day was not that special anymore. I think it only made it special because it was action direct. But nonetheless, yeah, that was like the goal I uh, I set to do, and I was then waiting for quite a few weeks for like for like the day, and then I don't mm. know, I, I picked like that certain day, even though it was quite cold, and uh, thankfully worked out. Yeah, when I was coming up in the red uh, and like coming through the grades, I got to eight A plus. And at the time, there were only five in the red. So it sort of stalled my progress in a way. It was hard as a weekend warrior to only be choosing from these five routes. Mm -hmm. um, I've heard that the Frankenjura has 100 routes 8C and harder. Mm -hmm. Is that true? That is true, yeah. It's probably like 120 now. <laughs> that's 
wild. Um, and I think that is probably, I think that plays into two things. Number one, um, Wolfgang having done lots of the first grades in the world, obviously he could travel elsewhere and do it. He did it across the world at, on Punks in the Gym for the first 14A. Um, but it has to help, I imagine, to have all these possibilities in this forest in your home area. For sure. Having a big repertoire of hard routes makes it easier to climb hard, I feel like. And I mean, that's that's an interesting thought experiment that was always thought about. If you see, if somebody was climbing, let's say, 13A or B 20 years ago or 30 years ago, that was like, I mean, it was rather rare, I would say, that a wide, like, wide range of people climbed that grade. Now those same people, even though they're, like, they're 30 years older, they still climb the same grade or like even yeah. particularly harder. So I always feel like with the progression in climbing and more hard routes being available to people, the level naturally goes up. And of course that helped in the front year as well. I could sort of like prepare, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. for the 9A grade in the front year by climbing other 9A routes and like 9A plus routes. And that also kind of prepared me for Action Direct. Whereas if Action Direct would have been like, the only 9A, that would have been the logical step to just climb it and not even focus on climbing it in one day. But because I had like this, right. like 15 other routes that were a similar grade, it was like easier to prepare. Yeah, totally. And I think that's a like, it's almost a gift to the next generation, you know, like a gift from Wolfgang to you to have all these routes available from from Wolfgang and Marcus Bach and and Norbert and Milan and all of these people who were establishing hard routes back then are giving you and your generation a gift in an easier path through those grades. Yeah, for sure. That's sort of like what our generation is trying to do for the next generation by establishing like nine Bs and nine B pluses and then giving yeah. them a bigger pool to choose from to then be able to climb those grades faster and then move up to the next grade. Yeah, that's great. Are there many locals who have repeated Action Direct? There are locals who have repeated Action Direct. Um, there's for sure a handful of locals that have repeated Action Direct. And I mean, if okay. you take German climbers that live within, let's say, a radius of like three, four hours, it's like a few more, but there's definitely local climbers that have repeated it, yeah. But the majority of repeats have definitely been from outside of Germany. Mm -hmm. So shortly after you did Action Direct, uh, maybe like a couple weeks later, maybe a week later, um, you went to Switzerland and you did the first free ascent of Fly, which was a 20-pitch big wall with pitches up to 8C that I think Roger Shawley had um, sort of prepared and then invited you to come and try. Mm -hmm. um, at that time, were there any thoughts of like the walls that Wolfgang had also gone and done, like Eternal Flame? Um, or is it just coincidence that I'm starting the Action Direct story off with Wolfgang on a big wall thinking about sport climbs? <laughs> no, I feel like that was coincidence. Back then, my mind was definitely set on, <laughs> on sport climbing and um, not yet on big wall climbing. That's not to say that I'll never do those big walls that maybe Wolfgang climbed 30 years ago. 
but back then it was a coincidence that uh, Roger called me and said, "Ah, he kind of needs a rope gun for for his yeah. boot." And um, but it was a good experience. It's an interesting experience, and I'll definitely do it again at some point. Yeah, I think that sort of thing doesn't get doesn't get talked about enough. Like I didn't even know about it until I went and was doing research for for talking to you. And it's something that you know all of the great climbers of the past have ha- went and did, and a lot of our great climbers of today are also doing the same thing. Um, we just don't always hear about it as much. So I think mm-hmm. it's pretty amazing. And you said you might go and do some more of that stuff someday. Yeah, for sure. I think back then it was more of a thing to uh, if you were a good climber, you also had to the big walls yeah. just because that's where climbing sort of came from a little bit as well. Or like mm-hmm. to conquer like the big mountain sort of so that was still more ingrained into the the history of climbing whereas now it's splitting off a bit more i feel like and sport climbing and big wall climbing and mountaineering are like very different things nowadays but nonetheless i mean it seems like one of the logical steps if you're a good sport climber to try to repeat like hard hard big walls because it resembles sport climbing still a lot yeah for sure i want to know a little bit about the frankinger i've never been um i all of this research has made me really want to come and visit um particularly because i think i'm probably a little predisposed to that style um you know i grew up in the 90s climbing on pockets and now i live in lander where we've got wild iris and which looks on pictures very similar to uh, the frank Nira. it's funny because i'm here at the eric's place and there's a few pictures of wild iris as well and i'm like yeah hmm, that could also be in the frank Nira. <laughs> yeah you'll have to come clean up here one day yeah. and we can just trade trips i'll come out to the frank <laughs> um i want to know about it like it it looks like this really idyllic forest playground like what was it like coming up there as a climber it is an idyllic playground for sure and i mean growing up there as a as a young climber like the uh, the potential of roots and the potential for new projects and the next thing to try seemed literally endless i mean if i compare now for example i could go to almost any area in the world except maybe like some of the spanish areas where they've got like super hard roots but mostly it takes me like a few trips to clean up an area. In the front mm-hmm. era, it's taken me like 10 years to clean mm. up the area, sort of. So the just the sheer amount of hard routes, also of hard like 8Bs that people don't repeat, or like 8Cs that people don't repeat, seemed endless. And I'd say probably I've been to maybe 10% of the crags in the front era by now. Or the other 90%. Wow. Yes, exactly. All the other 90%, obviously, I haven't been there because there's nothing hard, but that just gives you a little overview of how much there is. Like, you could spend, yeah, decades still in the front year of finding new places to go. And, you know, if you'd, I get older, for example, if I'm in, in my 70s and I decide to climb like all the seven seas in the Frank Mira, you know, that'll probably take another decade. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's, that's amazing. Exactly. So that's, that's, how how big it is uh, if you drive probably from uh, west side to east side or from north to south it'll take you more than an hour to get through the whole franken era 
mm. and there's everywhere little cracks and that makes it special which kind of like even if it's your home area you can always, always discover something new whereas i feel like in a lot of the other areas i mean if you take for example seis if you walk from left to right you will have seen the whole crack you know right in the front year to have seen every crack will take you i don't know like probably years <laughs> Wow, that's that's very cool. I, I know you've spent a lot of time repeating routes in the Frankenjura, and I remember an old uh, The Ledge podcast with Bjorn Pohl, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm going to be talking with Bjorn later on in this season too. Um, I remember you talking about a competition of sorts to repeat some 8A the most times that you were having with Dickie or something. Is yeah. that still going on? So the the competition was there was like a very classic eight A plus and quite a good eight uh, B plus next to each other, and Dicky had climbed that eight A plus for training purposes already like one hundred and thirty seven times or something, and mm-hmm. I wanted to catch up with the eight B plus next to it. So ah. yes, but I think Dicky stopped that two hundred and eighty nine times. <laughs> <laughs> and I have done the this eight B plus to to the left of it 160 times, so wow. it was one of those cracks that you know when it was cold and in winter everything was wet and you could only go to like a few places in the front Europe. That was one of those, and would literally drive out a couple of hours. Everybody like there's like no rest between the burns, sort of. We like always uh, alternate and within two hours each of us has climbed like eight pitches and then we went back home (laughs) wow amazing um it's not a a usual thing it's not a normal thing for people to repeat hard routes and i know ap plus is not necessarily hard for you um but you've repeated action direct as well Uh, how many times are you up to on that route Seven. I've repeated seven times. Did you repeat it again for this recent photo shoot? Uh, this like 360 degree <laughs> photo shoot you just did? No, I didn't. No, we had like very, very limited time. Like we arrived there and the setup was not ready yet. And we only had maybe an hour and a half until darkness. So we had to mm. like really hurry up to even get like the shot we got. And we we're kind of just lucky that it worked out in time. So um, we had already climbed at a different crack before with Yannick. So we literally just went there to try to get the photo shoot done. But uh, I refreshed some moves. And uh, I think, yeah, it's it's always like a style that also I have to get used to. Like if I haven't been climbing mm. the Frankenura and I've been to other areas around the world, it's still a very particular and uh, yeah crazy style. So even for me, it takes also a few days to always get back into Frank and Euro mode. Mm, that's good to hear. I think people a lot of the times have this expectation that they can just roll up to an area and climb the same grade that they do everywhere no, else. Absolutely not. I mean, <clears throat> I've had like some really, really strong climbers, you know, bouldering like 8B plus and 8C, and they get totally shut down on like 8B or 8B plus routes in the Frank and Euro, just because mm-hmm. it's very different to most of the other areas and people don't realize i mean some of the 8b pluses are like really really hard whereas i feel like in spain i could almost if i would know the route very well i could just like 
climate for warm-up, that would never ever be the case with most of the AB pluses in the front in Europe. Mm. Except for the one you've done 160 times. Except for that. <laughs> <laughs> that makes it even more impressive when you look back at like what Wolfgang and those guys were doing. You know, Wolfgang, Jerry Moffat, um, traveling all over the world, doing the hardest routes everywhere in these quick, short trips back in the 90s. For sure. I mean, that's very impressive. I mean, even if you take the Frankenmuir and like the roots in England, even though it's also limestone, they're still very different. And then, yeah, for also for Jerry, for example, to come to the Frankenmuir and put up some of the back then hardest routes, yeah. that's like a big achievement. It's it's not easy to uh, like to like to go to a different area and actually put up some of the hardest routes there. It, it takes time and like takes uh, time to get used to the style, to uh, like the route and everything. So. That's um, that's pretty cool. Yeah, you just sent a big project away from home, correct? I was, I mean, yeah, it was not super hard though. I mean, it was like like nine A, nine A plus. So that's something that I can climb even if I'm not, you know, super set on that style. Like even if I'm not like a hundred percent, you know, used to the area, that's something I can still send. But if it goes into the harder grades, like 9B, 9B plus and stuff like that, then it also takes more time to get acquainted with the, with that specific style. With so many people climbing at that level, at like the 9A, 9A plus level now, why do you think it is that those projects still are out there at relatively popular areas? I mean, it kind of makes sense, to be honest, because uh, if you have a lot of 9A, 9A plus climbers, they obviously get drawn to the areas where there's a lot of 9A, 9A pluses because everybody likes their options, sure. you know? So that's why, you, for example, don't see anybody who mostly, apart from locals, nobody's going to Romney to climb 9A or 9A plus because there is only one of each, you know? Mm-hmm. So I feel like if you're all up there and you can climb 9A or 9A plus and you've only got one option and if that option doesn't suit you, then you're kind of screwed. So obviously yeah, the more hard routes you have in an area, people get drawn to that area. And that also means that climbers who can climb harder than 9A, 9A plus get drawn to those areas. And then when they've done the 9As and 9A plus, they start looking around what else there is. And that's why that kind of creates this, like this hub and this place where people are looking for 9Bs and 9B pluses. And then of course they find them eventually yeah that you know that makes me think about wolfgang going to arapiles and doing punks and how impressive that is to go around the world and do the hardest route in the world at an area pretty radically different from (laughs) your home area yeah yeah for sure i mean that just kind of shows that even though back then it was the hardest route and i mean Punks in the gym was 85, right? And he climbed Action right Direct. around there, yeah. He climbed Action Direct 90. only like five years later. Yeah. Six years later. So, yeah. I mean, that kind of shows that he was by far not at his limit because nobody can tell me that totally. within six years to you progress like by four <laughs> grades or something. So, yeah. that kind of shows that climbing was still not very developed. And back then, even though 8B plus was the hardest route in the world, it was still so far below his abilities that he could just show up somewhere and within like 
a few weeks climb the world's hardest and first uh, 8b plus yeah i'm sure he's still a very like present figure uh around your home area as he is in all of climbing you know um for sure what do you think it is about him that we're so enamored with Hey, because he probably was um, a good personality. I mean, if you talk to people that knew him personally, he uh, he seemed to be an inspiring person. He seemed to be uh, like very calculating, but also just like a nice person to be around with. And I think that's what that's what stays with people. Like if you have somebody who has charisma and a, a good character, that's what's much more important or that's what's remembered by other people rather than his climbing achievements yeah he seemed at least in interviews and you know talking to the people who were friends with him back in the day he seemed like a really genuine easygoing kind of a person who wasn't you know super selfishly focused on his goals he he was focused on his goals but then he could snap out of that and just be a friend to everyone. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, if you take Norbert, for example, Norbert and Wolfgang back then, they bought like two properties right next to each other because they wanted to build their houses right next to each other. And I feel like mm. if you go this far, you kind of know that, okay, he must have been a nice person. Otherwise, he would have not wanted to build a house next to his. <laughs> yeah, I I read a story. Uh, I don't remember if it was in Ben Moon or Jerry Moffat's uh, book, but they talked about meeting Wolfgang uh, when Wolfgang was already a superstar. You know, he'd already climbed Kanal and Rukin and, and these things that were the top in the world. Um, and they meet him and they're basically living on the dole, you know, dirt bagging. And he saw the condition of the rope they were climbing on and was like, I'm going to go ahead and give you my rope because <laughs> I don't want you climbing on that thing anymore. Yeah. Um, I think that speaks a lot to his character. For sure. And I mean, he was always very inviting. That's why they had also this, like the place in the Frank Mira where, you know, for 13 or 14 years, people have been staying for like occasionally multiple months at a time and the mm -hmm. door was always open for any foreigner. Yeah. And that route, Action Direct, one of the things I don't really talk about much in the story episode but that has occurred to me since is uh, most of the hard routes at the time were vertical to lightly overhanging, um, edging, not super powerful. A lot of the climbers at the time were very static, three points of contact sort of climbing, you know. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's part of what made that, especially that move, you know, the first move off the slab so famous so much so that it's probably the most famous move in all of rock climbing at this point for sure i mean that was just not a thing to dino to something you know and i mean if you look at the roots back then uh, canal and rücken like you said or the face they're like dead vertical <laughs> yeah <laughs> they're literally yeah. by uh, modern standard slabs and it has i mean of course like for example wall street has like that bulge but the beginning is vertical and then you climb over the bulge and the actual crux kind of is also in the vertical holding small holds. But back then it seemed like everybody seemed to be going around those like super overhanging roofs because I don't know why. Maybe they felt like it was too hard or impossible to do. 
course, the shoes were very different to what we're wearing today. Sure. And that kind of made it made it very special. And that being said, Action Direct actually is um, a very unique route for the Frank Nura too, because most mm. of the hard routes in the Frank Nura are not as pockety as Action Direct is. Like mm. a lot of the routes up to um, 8A, 8A plus are quite pockety. And after that, everything is very, very crimpy up to like 9A plus, except Action Direct. That's kind of like the only route that pretty much only has pockets in that grade. Oh, interesting. It's, you know, we kind of have to give credit to both Milan and to Wolfgang, like Milan originally saying, let's climb this big bulge. And then Wolfgang saying, well, what if we just went direct through the steepest part of this thing? Mm-hmm. You know, that's them teaming up for that sort of futuristic vision is really cool. For sure. And uh, big props to Milanos also because he's put up like a lot of uh, very, very classic like 8B routes and 8B plus routes in the Frank Nero and even things that he didn't climb like Action Direct and things that he bolted always turned out, turned out like three-star routes. So you kind of need those people as well that have an eye for what is a good line and what potentially might be possible. Yeah. Uh, I just recently watched a video of you trying what you were calling the the last big project in the Frankenjura. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Like that was bolted by Patrick, right? That was bolted by Patrick and a friend of his, Philip. Yeah. Um, well, I think around 20 years ago. And it, it seems very obvious to bolt that line. Because you look up and you're like, okay, that there is a line of pockets that, and that's like the center line of that of that half dome thingy, and it absolutely makes sense to bolt it. But I, I can see why back then it seemed very futuristic. Even the right side of that of that cave, there is a very obvious line of pockets, and Philip back then bolted that and did the first ascent. That already turned out to be eight B plus, so mm-hmm. rather hard. Like coming from the left and climbing through that whole steep wall. Like the line looks very good with the bolts and the quick draws, but it also seems almost impossible. But nonetheless, they like did bolt it and it stayed project for a very long time and then had like some issues with uh, like a glued hole that had been removed then afterwards. Mm. But uh, I say that because, of course, there's still new routes being added to the front era. But there's no route where you would walk up to and be like, oh, my God, this looks really, really good. And that's exactly right. the case with this project. You stand in front of it and you're like, wow, this is crazy. And not only crazy for the Franken Euro, but anywhere else, this would have been like an amazing line to bolt. So that's what makes it so special. And that's why I say like the last great project, because I'm sure there is other projects but I don't think sure. there'll be any other project where you'll walk up to and be like, wow, this is crazy. Mm. Do you think you'll dedicate some time to it in the future? Hopefully. I mean, it's it's close by. It's doable for sure, even though it's like a very low percentage move uh, to uh, to a mono. But it seems like it seems absolutely worth dedicating some time just to see if it actually goes and if at some point they can piece it together. Very cool. Well, I have to ask this question um, and dig into this a little bit. 
because I've already talked to Buster Martin about this and you and Buster are the, the only two people who have climbed both Action Direct and Hubble. Uh, actually, hold on just a second here. Let me jump in. This part of the conversation, I'm actually deleting because there's a bonus episode coming out for you guys very soon about uh, Action Direct versus Hubble, the first 9A in the world. And I got both Buster and Alex's thoughts and uh, as well as some other folks. And I'm going to be putting an episode together just on that. So that's coming soon. However, I couldn't let this go without playing you this part of the conversation. I do also feel that although every hard climb obviously is condition dependent, even though I don't want to admit that often. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> yeah, I heard it. I heard it right here. Conditions matter. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately they do. It, it kind of sucks, but uh, the older you get, you realize that they kind of do matter at some point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, man, thank you for this. I, I appreciate you sitting down and talking. I I can't imagine uh, doing a, an Action Direct episode without you involved in, in some way, shape, or form, because I really think you're the person who has uh, carried on the torch of what of what Wolfgang was doing. You know, there are there are certainly other really amazing German climbers. You know, Stefan Glovach and and Alexander Huber. Um, but with the like the rocket that was Wolfgang, I think that's I think you're carrying that forward. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, and I, I also appreciate you using your platform uh, that climbing has given you to to look at other issues that are larger than climbing uh, in lots of different ways as well as continuing to inspire us to to try harder um and, and now everyone knows conditions matter <laughs> thank you yeah i'm i'm trying to use my platform for uh things outside of climbing because even though uh, sometimes we get carried away and we feel like climbing matters a lot to us it's it's still only climbing we're living in such a bubble that it really doesn't matter to be honest that much yeah well man i hope uh i hope you make it out here to wyoming sometime to walk up everything and i'll come to the frank and you to struggle up a few things <laughs> sounds like a good deal <laughs> One, two. All right, Written in Stone is produced by me, Chris Hampton, with help from Riley Rush and Emily Holland for Plug Tone Audio, a group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. At the link in your show notes, you'll find all the things you expect and probably some you don't, including that 360-degree photo of Alex Magos doing the most famous move in the world. And look, this show is 100% rooted in the facts, but like Todd Skinner always said, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. And if you love what you're hearing, give us those five stars and a glowing review and tell everyone you know, at the crag, at the gym, follow the pod on your friends' phones and share it all over your social medias. And together, we can tell the stories of climbing's most important ascents, one decade at a time.
conditions matter. Did you hear that, stoners? Conditions do matter. We knew it all along, but it's good that young Alex Magos is learning a thing or two about rock climbing. I mean, he really only had a thing or two left to learn anyway, so I'm glad he's learned them. Anyway, uh, that was a highlight of that conversation for me, and I it's going to show up in in the conversation next week, but I had to have it in here. I almost just left it at the end as a, a an extra stoner moment, um, but I didn't want to deprive the general listening audience of the brilliance of Magos admitting that. Also, did you know about Magos doing this big wall right after he did Action Direct? I had no idea. That caught me by surprise when I was doing the research for this and was strangely similar to Wolfgang's trajectory as well. So I thought it was really interesting, even if it was just a coincidence. Anyway, my voice is still with us, at least for today, Uh, maybe a couple more days. We'll see how that goes. Um, But next week is a the bonus episode uh, Hubble versus Action Direct, the world's first 9A. And actually, it was intended sort of as a filler. Um, it, it was something I wanted to talk about, but the way the schedule fell out in December, if we were going to take a break for Christmas, I didn't want to end it on a story and then have a break before we had the conversations. And that was the way it was going to fall out. So I needed to add a week in there. So I intended to just do an easy week, you know, talk about the two and my thoughts on it and and get a few thoughts from Buster Martin and from Alex Magos. But it turned into this whole production as I tend to do. And now it's a nearly hour long episode that includes lots of conversation with Alex and Buster, um, clips from Ben Moon, Steve McClure, Adam Andra, um, And reading a little from a PDF of an article that Ben wrote a long time ago that I I hope that I can uh, bring more to you about throughout this season because it's a really fascinating article on grading, actually, and and I've never seen anything else like it, and I'm surprised it doesn't make the rounds even more. But like I tend to do... um, I end up asking way more questions than giving answers uh, because I think it's a really fascinating um, thought experiment once you really start digging into it. And I suspect you'll find the same. Okay, before I go, a couple of things that are coming up. We will be finishing out December before our brief Christmas break with the largest forearms in climbing and several conversations. uh, I think we have three actually conversations about those forearms. And then in the new year, we're doing a Secret Stoners Club giveaway. Uh, We're going to have some things from Tension as well as from Power Company, and uh, I may try to get a couple of books together, um, climbing history books, to put into this giveaway as well. I'll see what I can do. All right. I'll see you guys next week.